Welcome to the Carlow Decade of Centenaries podcast series, brought to you by Carlow County Libraries and Carlow County Museum. Hello, and you're very welcome to Carlow County Council's Decade of Centenaries podcast, brought to you by Carlow Libraries and Carlow County Museum. During this series of podcasts, we will present to our listeners discussions and insights into the stories, events and historiography of the turbulent times of over a century ago, and hopefully provide our audience with a better understanding and appreciation of those momentous events. My name is John O'Gorman, and today I am joined by historian, author and podcaster Finn Dwyer. Finn is a graduate of UCD, holding a degree in archaeology and Greek and Roman civilization, and has also completed a master's in archaeology. In 2010, he established the Irish History Podcast, which today enjoys a global audience. He is also the author of two books on aspects of medieval life in Ireland. Earlier this year, Finn began his mammoth series about the Irish War of Independence, work on which is ongoing. Finn, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, normally you're on the other side of a podcast, you are sure, uh, the one putting everything together, so uh, you might hopefully get a break from it today. Um, can we start, Finn, by first of all asking you what your own story and relationship with history is? When did it begin and how did it develop for you? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks very much for inviting me, John. It's uh, great to be here. Um, I suppose my own background, I grew up not too far from Carlo in North Kilkenny in Castle Comer. And um, in terms of history, I suppose, this part of the world is a great place in terms of just being surrounded by history. Kilkenny obviously has a very long like medieval history, and I suppose that would have piqued my interest in that in a general sense. So I was always interested in history. People often ask me, like, you know, why? And I don't have a great uh, story. There was no light bulb moment. But I do think maybe spending a lot of time around, you know, like places like Kilkenny Castle or just the extensive ruins all across North Kilkenny and this part of the world, um, certainly peaks an in interest in the past and then your surroundings are going to have yeah an for sure curiosity for sure. looking around and seeing what you're seeing around you yeah yeah no and i think that definitely would have had an impact and then um i certainly by the time i was filling in my cao or whatever and thinking about what i'd do in university um I wanted to do something in this general area and I went actually and did a course in archaeology in UCD um, and then I did a master's in archaeology um, and I also did a, a degree in Greek and Roman civilization which I suppose I haven't put to great use, I don't know if you can these days, but anyway it's an interesting course I suppose that covered Roman and Greek history and culture um, from you know obviously ancient Roman and Greek uh, culture. Um, and then I would have worked in archaeology at, on Leaving College for several years in and around Dublin, um, okay. which was great. Like archaeology, it's a fascinating thing to work in. It's not necessarily conditions in the archaeology industry, certainly then, were very poor, mm. poor pay, poor conditions. Um, huge amount of money slashing around it because it was tight construction. It really was a vocation. Yeah, a that was like, I, I, I suppose I felt at the time that uh, people were being exploited mm -hmm. um, and it definitely wasn't a, an industry that I wanted to, yeah. to, to, to work in. As it happened then in 2008 with the collapse in the economy, archaeology was actually one of the first things to go because once construction stopped, more or less all archaeology, archaeological excavations in the country kind of 
would have ground to a halt, you know. Digging stopped in every sense. Ah, completely. Like there was, there was. I heard a figure of eighty-five percent of archaeologists were out of work, and I don't know if that's. I don't know where that comes from, but mm. it wouldn't surprise me just because archaeology obviously makes sense. Any construction that happens, you know, you need to have an archaeological survey and then potential excavate. Yeah, exactly. And if that if there's no construction, there's no um, excavations. So it's great to see it kind of coming back now. You know, and like people are able to get work, and you know that that is fantastic to see. But um, around that time, I also got quite ill, and but I think I'd kind of made the decision that I wasn't going to be working in archaeology in ten years' time. This yes. is in two thousand and eight, um, but I got quite seriously ill uh, with Crohn's disease, and I wouldn't have been able to, in any case, work in archaeology into the future. Um, and it was around two thousand and ten then, or rather before two thousand and ten, I was listening to a lot of podcasts that right. I started. And then in 2010, I just started making one. But at that point, it was purely a, you know, I wasn't able to work. And I would have been reading history. And it's kind of, you know, reading with a purpose as opposed to reading just for enjoyment. Yes, and yeah. It was great to be able to read, to do something with what I was reading. And that's where it started, purely, I suppose, to keep myself, like, busy, like, you know, rather than having nothing to do. And Finn, when, when you decided to take the plunge and actually produce a podcast... Did you have in your head a particular story that you wanted to tell or were you just having a look around and seeing what you could possibly produce? Was there a driving ambition to tell a story, a particular story, when you started? No, I would have had a, 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 an aim at, talk, at, at telling like medieval Irish history because I think something that people in Ireland don't really know very much about in general, like our medieval history. Now, people might know names or events, but the actual story of it. And I suppose I, I always think it's a very important part of any podcast, particularly since they've grown the last three years, is that it has to have a purpose. Very few people have a life that's worth, that, that's interesting enough. But I think yeah. a podcast needs to have a focus. And uh, Is that why you run, not, not exclusively in series, but... A lot of your work to date has been series where you do tell the story uh, um, in, in, from start to finish. Yeah, like if, I think it like gives you the, the scope to delve into something. You know, now they can be very time consuming to put together, so you can't just constantly move them one back to back. Mm. But as a goal, yeah, I think like the idea of doing 10 or 20 episodes on one topic is good because, you, you know, you get a chance then to delve into a topic in detail, whereas if you're doing one episode, it's, you know, it's, you can't go in depth just by the... by and, the. And it probably goes against the instincts of the historian to, to look at a story and not be able to tell the whole story as you want to tell it. Yeah, like, you know, you're... Like, if I was doing standalone episodes, I would usually do them on maybe a very specific incident right. you know maybe a murder that happened in the 19th century something, like, or something, something like that because yeah. then you're not really talking about wider societal things so you don't need to kind of you know look into varying aspects you're actually looking at you know one family one community at one time you know and that that kind of thing would would lend itself to that but i think if you're certainly now anyway if i was dealing with much bigger topics i just wouldn't bother like, you know i wouldn't make two episodes on the war of independence because i don't really know if I have anything to add in two episodes. Okay. You know, yeah. Like there's so much out there. And we will go into uh, a little bit more t detail later on 
about the way in which you have been able to go off the beaten track but yet tie it into the grand story of the War of yeah. Independence and, and show how it fits. Um, and when it came to producing your own podcast, did you gain inspiration from any other producers or any other podcasts that you had been listening to and you thought, they're wonderful, can I do something that, that could be equally as good or can I emulate those? Yeah, I suppose one that I was definitely listening to that was something I would have been trying to like you know, emulate on some level was The History of Rome by Mike Duncan, who subsequently gone on to make a great series, Revolutions. Um, another podcast, which I suppose the style would be very, very different from what I'm making, but was, I suppose, just generally, you know, that it was uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And then there's lots of other ones that you'd be delving in and out. Some have disappeared long ago, like, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, podcasts that existed 2011, 12, the beauty uh, of them, though, they're still there. Yeah, that's great. You know, and yeah. hopefully they'll all stay there. Just, I, I, just one of the things I suppose with podcasting is, if people aren't paying server, uh, you know, producer to, to be updated, they'll eventually disappear. Like, or you know, if, because it's all existing in a private. It's not being done through. There's no library repository that you can put these things into. You know, which is, I suppose, into the future. Something that's going to have to be looked at is uh, like yeah. where can this content be and how is it going to be now? Obviously, storage of it is easier, I suppose, than books, but the making it accessible online after people die and things like that—it's yes, yeah. it, going to be because huge amounts of information are already just disappeared off the internet, like in audio files, because they're not being someone just stopped paying a, a bill and the they're, company they're not being hosted and just disappears. You know? We're coming at this from a, a library perspective, mm. so perhaps that's something we could possibly look into about what yeah. needs to be preserved, work that is especially relevant to County Carlow and to Ireland in general. Um, there is a danger that if it's not properly created and looked after, they could be lost. Yeah, for sure. Like I don't know what the situation is now, but I remember <clears throat> I know the National Library started um, archiving websites, I think, um, but I contacted them and they weren't taking audio at that point, you know, and, you know, because it is, I suppose, a huge endeavour to start that in that, like, all of my podcasts might just be a few gigs, but if you start collecting mm. all podcasts, you're going to, I suppose, over time start running into huge... Storage uh, issues. Yeah, and, and then... Expense issues. Yeah, exactly, and then, I suppose, over time, making sure that whatever format they're in continues to remain accessible, all those issues. Um, but I do think it's probably something that needs to be looked at going forward because content, digital formats of content, whatever way that's going to go, maybe it won't always be audio, but some other form of it is going to be the way huge amounts of information are produced yes. now. And it's all decentralised, so it's not just UCDs publishing, you know, or people connected with the university that are pu putting out the lion's share. It's actually flipped. The majority of content now is being produced in a very decentralised way. And right. It would be great actually if libraries in the you know became that point where this is centralized you know on some level like you know much in the way that published material can be exactly, centralized yeah, and yeah. it has to be centralized yeah, yeah 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 um finn we are in the course of this series we are speaking with authors and historians who have by and large worked with the printed word in one shape or form the book, mm. the journal, in some cases the website. 
where do you think the podcast fits into the study of history today? And do you see them as having a, a, a greater role in academia in the years to come? Yeah, definitely will have a greater role in academia. I suppose one of the things about podcasting is it varies massively in terms of quality, in terms of, and I don't mean audio quality, I mean the actual history being presented. Yes, because yeah, like, of course. nothing's stopping me just like saying whatever I want, do you know what I mean? And you can't put footnotes very easily no, in it's, conversation. Yeah, it's, it's not the, I suppose, that, that's one problem, but even just like huge error, like I, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of content put out there is just wrong. It's, it's, it's factually incorrect. Now, traditionally with publishing houses, you would have had some degree of quality control. Not always, like there's some awful books being published, but generally, you know, there will be an editorial process that might just, at least someone is checking it. Yeah. Um, so within podcasting, you don't have that. You have um, a, so you have this huge variety versus from really well-researched material through to like something I heard down in the pub last week uh, presented as history, you know, and if, so I suppose that's one of the issues about podcasting. The, that's ver- the veracity of what's yeah. been produced, yeah. That said, it's going to become, universities need to take this stuff seriously. Uh, they still don't, in my experience. Um, they have dabbled, some universities are kind of dabbling at the edges of it, and they do produce, there's been a great, uh, Queen's produced an amazing series called Bad Bridget, but not all, like, universities are really engaging in it. I find, personally, that, you know, people, I think, you know, and this is the same with, all material published online that people in the in the third in third level um, are still dubious of it and they may use it but they're a bit uh, unsure about how to do they want to reference a website for example in you know a PhD or a master's because they feel that this in some way will be looked down on yes and there's a great historian who published the blog called Irish in the American Civil War, Damien Shields, and he talks a lot about this, about how people t- people take Damien's work quite a lot, because this is very specific research stuff, pension files in the US, so it's really specific work. It's appeared in books, mm-hmm. and he, all, he, he reckons that the reason that people won't reference it is not because they don't want to reference him, it's because they're, they don't want to put a website in a... In a, in a in referencing, and I, the point I'm getting at here is that I think it still hasn't made it as such in that regard, you know, and, and that is an issue. Like, And we have been looking at websites for 25 odd yeah, years. Yeah, like, you know, and the material on websites now is, you know, you need to go, like, I suppose websites like anything else, you need to check what the material is like. Mm. Is it actually properly researched? If it is, then it should be used just like a book, just like any other resource. So perhaps the establishment of accepted standards yeah, in the production of a podcast would help to um, make it more acceptable, I suppose, or, or better received? Yeah, like there's an issue with that. Like I suppose any kind of censorship on the internet comes up with the question, who does that? Mm. Um, who would be the accepted voice of, who would fund that? Like, Generally speaking, I think that people need to be encouraged to look at the material listeners themselves and go, is this, like, where is this coming from? You know, the very basic questions people would have about any kind of book or material, you know, what is the person saying? 
where are they getting the information from? Have they researched it? Do they have a bias? Everyone has a bias, but where is that bias coming from? Mm. You know, um, and encouraging the listener maybe, you know, on a much more kind of critical approach among the general population probably would be the better way to go. I, personally, I'm not sure just the nature of the internet, any kind of vetting process. The podcast will still be released. It'll be released in another way. So we can't stop that happening. Yes. And I, I don't think it's a good idea to, um, but yeah, just encourage As you said, the stories in the pub sometimes are good stories. They're great and, they're, and they're important. They're, and they're important. In, and they're yeah. entertaining. Yeah. And a lot of the folklore we have would have been passed down in that way too. So yeah. there's a place for that as well. There is, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's just about, I suppose, coming back to our original point, it is going to be really important moving forward. You know, that, that's um, as a digital, digital creation or create, like history being produced. Um, history, I suppose, more importantly, it's not even about the format. It's about history being produced by independent researchers who are not linked into third level institutions. Okay. Like, particularly actually because of the way third level institutions are going, that it's really hard to make a career in those, whereas you can, small, I suppose, percentage, but you can make a career as an independent researcher. Like, there's just no way I would go back into a third level institution now. Um, so I suppose, though, but, and some way of having that material, in the, you know, the two need to, 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 to work, because, like, researchers are going to use the pro, the the, the the books produced in third level institutions mm -hmm. like that's you know what any decent history is going to be using so I think yeah the, 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 but I think it'll develop over time naturally people need to be cautious and come up with it yes you know so yeah. like I don't think it's a let the buyer be aware in, in yeah. some some yeah. sense Finn you produce on a regular basis 30 40 minutes of well-researched, well-produced, excellently presented material. Can you give us a little summary of how a thought that comes into your head about a story makes its way from your head onto my iPhone? Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, In quick, easy steps. Yeah, I suppose any, you know, you come across lots of interesting stories and I suppose often the first thing would be is that I'd see if there was a podcast in it. You know, sometimes you might have come across something interesting, but it's not going to go beyond five or ten minutes. So, you know, I might just kind of save that for an anecdote or use in a much bigger project. Um, then, if it, so if there is enough in it, it's about establishing the story itself. Um, you know, and that can take seeing is there anything else published on us use that, then newspaper archives, other archival material that might be in another archive if that's available. Um, and then I suppose after that is the process of identifying, a, a, you know, maybe a, a person that's not covered that much in other work. Um, and a focus. unique angle that you Yeah, exactly. And maybe focusing, and that can be tricky because you can find someone, follow them for like, you know, spent days researching them and then it just peters out and there's just not enough there and you have to find that. And then after that then begins the writing. And that can take days and days or it can be relatively fast. Mm. Um, I suppose the more I do it, the faster I'm getting at it. But it usually takes that general uh, path. Right. 
and then the the practicalities involved with recording you've employed actors as well in some of your yeah, series yeah. do you find yourself really directing them on their shoulder or do you simply hand over what you need to have recorded and let them at it are you are you very uh, hands-on when it comes no, to that no 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 i don't think like it's like they're experts at theirs like they i don't know very much about acting you're, you're able to let it go yeah yeah no no I, I wouldn't think there's any um use or value in me telling them you know i think they're that's their area of expertise so i just generally try i hope that's what they think. okay <laughs> yeah. okay yeah um but uh yeah no i'd always try and let them now finn looking at i suppose the main reason we, we invited you to talk with us today your war of independence series now, you're not afraid of taking on the big, wide-ranging wide ranging mm. issues like pre-Viking Ireland, the Norman invasion, and the Great Famine. Um, did the study of the War of Independence hold greater challenges for you, given the material that's available, and I suppose the influence that the War of Independence still has on us today in 21st century Ireland? Did you look at the entire event and feel any different to taking it on as you did to some of the other big issues that you've tackled? No, I think the famine was definitely harder. Um, it wasn't, I'm not saying the war of independence is easy or, or easy, but it was definitely not as difficult as the famine. Um, and I think Irish people understand far less about the famine than they do about the war of independence, but a lot of people think they understand the famine. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Mm. It's just we have very fixed ideas about what happened in Ireland in the 1840s and the reality is a bit different, or certainly to my experience. But with the War of Independence, um, I suppose part of the process of actually starting that was going, what am I not going to do? Yeah. And that was useful. So I suppose just given the resources that I would have, I wasn't going to try and rewrite a history of the War of Independence in terms of like, you know, I didn't think that I was going to come up with blistering new takes on, like, that wasn't really what I set out to do. What I was hoping is that over, like, 24 episodes, tell the history of the war, maybe introduce characters, individuals, and some aspects that don't necessarily get covered, but also provide a sense, if you're listening to the whole thing through, you go, okay, that's what happened. Because I think, while it has been fantastic, um, over the last, you know, we've had... To, well, no, since 2013, there's been commemorative events, huge amounts of publications. A lot of those have focused on local uh, aspects of the war, which is fantastic because, you know, you get events brought to the All fore. of those come together yeah. to make the, the whole national story. Yeah. The one thing I think, though, potentially can lack then is uh, if you live in some aspect of the country, you can kind of get a very localised perspective. And I think it is important to produce those kind of narrative events as well. So that's what I was kind of hoping is that, as you say there, it links those events um, and giving a sense of what happened um, over the 10 years, I suppose, but really the two years from 1919 to late, well, three years, I suppose, to, to, to late 1921. Um, but yeah, kind of creating a, a narrative of those by, you know, as you're obviously linking in with some of the local research done, but mainly kind of focusing on the maybe higher level politics uh, and events and trying, I suppose, so people can fit their story into that, you know. You didn't try to reinvent the wheel. You just 
Definitely not. Put, no, put and different like, tires on it. Yeah, like they, they definitely not. And you know, I think you have to look at what. I don't have the resources to that to do that. You know, like that's what people who spend four or five years, maybe doing a PhD, do. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have the the time or resources to spend that amount in terms of that uh, in, 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 in on a project like that. Now, Finn, in in looking at the project. It's very hard to know from, say, from my point of view, looking in, very hard to know where to start it because you could arguably and conceivably go all the way back to Bano Bay yep. to start yeah. this. And indeed, you have been back to Bano Bay yeah. in another series and a few other places too. But you started this series in your own hometown yeah. in Castlecomer in County yeah. Kilkenny. Can you give me some idea, first of all, why you started the series there, and secondly, who you started it with? Um, I think the story of Castle Comer was good because it reflected uh, uh, some of the changes going on across Ireland. It wasn't, I suppose, Castle Comer has an unusual history in that it's a coal mine town, but you, I didn't want somewhere that had a completely, completely different history. You know, if you pick a town that had, like, was, say, a very dominant, uh, say, it was overwhelmingly unionist, that might be that useful because that's not the, say, the... The, the story across yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, like, well, that's an important part of the story. So um, what I want, liked about Ca the, the, the events in Castle Comer is that it had the tension between um, the emerging nationalist movement and a unionist um, establishment, I suppose, in the town. Um, it was also something I was quite familiar with. I'd done a lot of research into the Wandlesford family in particular, so I was, I had uh, material on that that I felt would work well in terms of, uh, and then I was able to do a bit more research on people like um, Annie Laracy, who who was an important figure in the town in terms of the nationalist movement during the First World War. Um, and to start, I suppose, I focused as well on, on the Wandlesford family, who were the landlords and coal mine owners, because they also kind of reflect that uh, the, their connections to the First World War also allowed me to introduce that. and that So was, a bit of continuity in the great events of the early 20th century and the famine, the land war. Yeah, like, like the They were involved and they were Yeah, there. like the experience of the town, though, from the key events as I saw them, um, I think Castlecomer allows you to bring those in, you know, because it does have, like... Town stretches back to the early seventeenth century, but particularly its its history through the later nineteenth century. I think allows to touch on lots of important events going on, and even the fact that there was an industri there was industrial disputes in Castlecomer, um, which is quite unusual, obviously, for rural Ireland. You know, or the type of industrial dispute unusual, anyway. unusual to have industry in the first place. Yeah, and particularly to have like heavy industry um, like coal mining. Um, and there was labour disputes around that uh, that allowed them to touch on obviously things like the lockout and things like that in Dublin that are much more important. But if you're using that as the kind of introductory kind of, you know, it allows it to be rooted in a very specific place, but links it into the general. Because people would be forgiven for thinking when you're talking about labour disputes around this period in Irish history, you go to Dublin for the lockout, you go to Limerick for the Soviet, you don't necessarily go to Castlecomer in County Kilkenny. To no, see those no, and playing out. Um, and I suppose you do get like labour disputes of a kind across rural Ireland. Maybe a bit later on, 
you do the type of dispute you get in Castlecomer is very, very unusual in that it's real heavy industry that you would associate maybe with, more with Belfast and Dublin than yeah outside outside those two places. Really, that kind of real uh, heavy industry is not really something we associate with Ireland um, outside those two cities and even Dublin limited. Like, so taking Castlecomer, you set the scene. Yeah, for Ireland before the outbreak of hostilities in 1919. You would then take us to Frangach, which of course has been well written about, and again it shows how you were looking at the, the higher mm. level elements as well. And uh, from there we go to Countess Markovich, mm. a mm. study of her. And with her introduction, it brings in another element of the study of the War of Independence, which has been greatly questioned in recent years, and that is the role of women mm. in the mm. revolution. What is your opinion on how things have been done previously with regard to the treatment of women in, in the rising and in the war of independence, and indeed the civil war, and do you see ways in which it's changing? To a degree, history probably reflects wider society, and women, in the 1920s in particular, sorry, not in particular, but from the 1920s onwards, women's, the advances women had made during the revolutionary period in Ireland were rolled back upon, women were essentially forced back out of public life. Um, and then history just reflected that, where there was like kind of these images of men with guns, and that's what the Irish War of Independence constituted uh, on a series of, you know, you know ambushes, you know, the IRA flying columns, and uh, in the last, whatever, 10 years, certainly more though, there's been um, investigations into the, the role and experience of women in the war. And yes, it is very different to men. You know, I don't think anyone would argue it's not, you know, it's, it's, it, it, but that their involvement and how important that was to the revolutionary movement. I think this probably touches on another point. We traditionally in Ireland, and sometimes still you'd see it, the narrative and understanding of the War of Independence can be often a very narrow one that talks purely about the IRA. Um, and even within that then, very specific um, brigades of the IRA. Yeah. But say even though, like, so I'm thinking, you know, the Dublin Brigade of the IRA and then the three Cork Brigades. And the big three. Yeah, you know, and, and like that, that will dominate you know, the understanding, yeah, and it is true, like, I think it's 60% of all casualties, or fatalities, in the entire war, civilian and military, all happen in Dublin, Belfast and Cork and the surrounding county, the corresponding counties. So, you know, they, they obviously, events in those counties do shape the war, but that doesn't mean that events at the time happening elsewhere are not really important. Like, for mm. so, for example, something I think that people don't think about a lot, is I've got an episode coming out in a couple of weeks about the IRA in England who are have a huge involvement in the war through smuggling guns back to yeah, Ireland. Industrial and attacks. And the, like the, and then the, yeah, they, they, like they, they are limited, but they do uh, launch a series of attacks that burned the Liverpool docks in 1920, and they plan a series of m much bigger attacks um, Aren't going to materialise. They burn down Old Trafford and Hyde Park, um, not have burned them down, but set fires. You know, so they, 
But anyway, I suppose my point is, is that if you take this real narrow um, understanding of the war, you only get a very specific story. But if you broaden it out, and I suppose the term Irish Revolution might be more useful then, that's where I think we can start looking at a much fuller picture because that's where then you really start to see the involvement of women who, um, you know, the, yes, the number of women who carried weapons is very few in number, but then when you start to look at, like, say, intelligence and things like that, yes. that's where they yeah. become very important. Or, say, on Bloody Sunday, uh, for example, in Dublin, uh, coming on had to play an important role in some of the actions in terms of getting weapons, you know, the ones that have happened in the city centre, for example, getting weapons away from uh, the city centre. Um, and you're looking as well at domestic staff, I imagine, as well, giving yeah. intelligence. And like, oh, like, and actually try, yeah, and, and, you know, obviously there's a gap in some of this because some people never, you know, just like, the, it can be very small uh, details that people provide. But I think we are starting to get a much better understanding. And also then there's the flip side of, like, in all war, women are targeted, and often that targeting of women can take on, you know, the form of sexual assaults, sexual attacks, and there is, like, how, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to overplay how common this was, but work has been done recently, and looking at that, and you can see some of it in witness, witness statements um, in the military archives, just references to small incidents where you start, are, are I think, what's more common um, is attacks on, um, you know, women being having their heads shaved yeah. um, for consorting with... Uh, members of the military. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's, I suppose, the two things are different. So you have people who are involved in the revolutionary movement, and then you have people who f fall foul of it. And then there's obviously women who are, suffer attacks from Crown forces. Um, and that's also... So, so I suppose we're getting a fuller picture. Uh, sorry, as we get a fuller picture of the revolutionary period, then we naturally get... A fuller picture of fifty percent of the population yes. who had previously been yeah. marginalised, but I do think that fuller picture is important because it also then brings the story of the war in places like say in Kilkenny. Fame, you know, people would argue not a lot happened. Now the numbers of ambushes and things like that are much you know pale and insignificant if you talk about Cork or somewhere like that. But if you look at if you start to take those revolutionary activity in in the round then you know it does you know and it, it, i'm not saying it's the same you know but you know for example families who have to live where people are rounded up and sent to, to in, interned you wait if you have fundraising if you have you know that you know i suppose the more political side of the movement then you do see uh, a change or for example you know a small example can be like in castle comer again somewhere that i'm familiar with in uh the Wandersfords who owned the coal mines in the town warned the IRA that if they raided the coal mines for explosives, that they'd shut down the mines. And that's a really big deal in Castle Comer. Hundreds that's of people worked there. Yeah, exactly. And like yeah. you know, if you're and the IRA never directly attacked the coal mines, but one of the reasons, according to witness statements, is because the miners, for example, were already smuggling out explosives out of the mines, so they didn't need to. Now that's not necessarily always thought about but you know that's an important activity as part of this wider story mm. so i think that's that also brings counties that would have had you know traditionally you know because it was seen, would be as, seen as more more quiet and not yeah, as active and you know it is a war seen by many people you know like there's a, lots of aspects of that so it's a war seen as being fought in dublin and cork mm. and to a lesser extent then you know starts in tipperary and you know then parts of munster 
But that allows then, for example, the experience of people in Northern Ireland today to be almost completely forgotten, even though Belfast is the, unquestionably the most violent place on the island. And yeah. um, the war is very different there. It's a sectarian war. And it seems to have, it seems to have passed by the, the treatment of this time, I won't say unmentioned, but if you look at the period from, say, the truce to the start of the Civil War, especially in Belfast, up around there, um, the number of casualties is absolutely enormous. And you can, only, you can only surmise that if it had happened in Dublin or Cork or anywhere else like that, or Castlecomer, um, we'd know all about those figures and it would be very well treated. Yeah, I think it's, sometimes history is influenced by what follows, or a lot of the times it is. And I suppose to a degree, we have decided or increasingly there's a, a tendency to overlook or not talk about the reality of life in Northern Ireland and the nature of the Northern Irish state after the 26 counties forms the Free State. And it's like a deeply sectarian uh, stage that treats Catholics and nationalists in an appalling way. Um, and if you look at what was happening there during the War of Independence in the lead up to the creation, the Government of Ireland Act, it was very obvious this was going to happen. Like, it would be extraordinary if you look at the powers that be in people like Edward Carson, Craig, who were in Belfast, say for example, on the, the 12th, for the big orange parades, were goading people into attacking their Catholic neighbours. <laughs> what, what do we think was going to happen when these people then take power? And I suppose history has gone in a certain way where the discussion of the experience of people, particularly nationalists and, and Catholics in, in, in the six counties was something that a lot of people in the 26 counties didn't really want to think about for a long time and then history naturally kind of gets bound up in that and their experience of the war kind of it's odd because their experience of the war is almost entirely forgotten and now less so until recently and but in, still and in many cases their experience was so much more brutal and savage than it was for the vast majority of the oh, population in, like, in the 26 counties there's no comparison between events in belfast and anywhere else on the island um derry maybe can you know there's point in Derry in April 1920 where there's really savage sectarian violence um, you know so, and then but I suppose like if we want to look at one single event like the pogroms in Belfast that yeah. start with the shipyards and driving out what were called like what, with the Catholics and then what were called the rotten prods or you know the trade unionists uh, and anti-sectarian Protestants out of the shipyards and you're driving thousands of people out of work mm. is and homes and homes, and uh, like your, the, the impact of, of that and the nature of that violence is, as you say, is, is savage. And it's something that, because, I suppose part of it is that it doesn't really fit the story of the war in Dublin. Or really, you know, arguments have been made about the nature of the war in Cork at times. And was it sectarian? Yes. And Especially when it comes to the Civil War and houses start to be burned. But yeah, like, but whatever which way people look at that, there's just no comparison to, between events in Cork even. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, a different context at play in Cork um, than, say, in Belfast. But I think 
hopefully as we get this broader understanding of the conflict that it's not just one thing that it's you know for example as well maybe a good example of this as well is that in 1919 in january 1919 there's a big strike in belfast over to reduce work hours from 54 hours a week to 44 hours a week and they don't want a, a reduction in pay it's a big strike that is ostensibly nothing to do with the war of independence as a military conflict because um, um, obviously they can't, workers and the trade unions cannot discuss the national question because they've such widely opposing views on it. So, but I suppose if we take a broader approach of the experience of the war, then you can draw in these things. And I think that comes back then to where we started with women. Um, if, we, if we move away from this quite unhelpful reductionist idea of just a few, you know, the IRA brigades in really active parts of the country, which I think did dominate it, you know, for a long time. And Finn, we've mentioned women as whose role really hasn't, hasn't obviously received the same attention. You've mentioned sectarianism there as well. Mm. Would you say that that has gotten the attention it has deserved? Do you think it has been well treated or do you think that it demands that more historians pay more attention to it and uh, investigate it further on both sides? Because as you said, you described there the events, um, the savage events in especially Belfast. We can have examples of something similar on a smaller scale throughout the country, especially when it comes to um, attacks on Anglo-Irish landholders and unionists. Is there, is there scope to develop further that study or do you think that we've given it its due? No, I, I think it has to be looked at more and some of, the, some of the narrative around it is just not helpful. That's shaped by people's political views today. Like this, there's a, a definitely a, a kind of a rhetoric out there that, that you know, the Republican slash nationalist movement are sectarian and then there's this you sometimes see this like kind of effort to, nar- to create a narrative that the war was therefore kind of like sectarian and that's not helpful and we need to look at case by case and maybe there are incidents but we also then have to introduce things like class in terms of understanding you know attacks on large-scale property now i'm not saying there's not sectarian attacks but but also even in terms of like look re-looking at some of the events in Derry and Belfast and like, you know, the nature, like our understand, like the certainly wider understanding of the IRA in, in, in the six counties during the War of Independence is like in terms of, the, I suppose when I talk about this, I'm talking about the wider public, because that's kind of like, you know, what I would deal with, you know, in terms of like, how, that, you know, that's the audience say of the podcast and people's understanding of that is very, very limited. Like, you know, the IRA don't really exist in the six counties mm. during most of the War of Independence. And, you know, it's the ancient order of Hibernians. Now, they are a sectarian organisation in, in, in a really extreme sense. The Orange Order's counterparts on the Catholic like, side. Exactly. And, but they have, you know, they have a lot of support in Catholic communities and that needs to be, and nationalist communities, and that needs to be picked apart as well. And when you mention that, like you say, to, to the majority of the audience, um, the, the ancient order of Hibernians is a group that they probably might have heard of mentioned in passing but wouldn't have understand, understood exactly their role, what they did, who they were and what they believed. Yeah, and yeah, there are political connections to the Irish Parliamentary Party and 
Um, yeah, people, people, I think it is actually let alone what they did people just don't know they existed yeah. and, and play a role so I suppose coming back to that thing that, 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 that would be good, a good example of uh, an element of sectarianism that has not really been no, delved into it, very deeply you know it's, 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 it's important you know and so I suppose coming back to the thing does sectarianism need to be re-looked at yes definitely and I think it's not one like I think yes you know someone we go, go we're always talking about sectarianism but we're, we're talking about sectarianism maybe as people wanted it, you know, that suits a political agenda yeah. today, not as... You, you know, only ha- want to, to address the sectarianism that you're comfortable with hearing. Yeah, and, you know, there was unquestionably sectarianism within the Republican movement, you know, to state otherwise. It's just, like, denying the reality of Ireland in the, in the early 20th century. Arguably, you could probably make some sort of statement, you know, wider Irish society... It, just people's conception of the world is one divided between Catholics and Protestants. And, I am X and you are Y. Yeah, and you know, I suppose that kind of famous thing of Irish atheists being a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist, or, you know, and then you'd have to go back to the Catholic Church itself, its attitude, you know, with the pronouncements like Nathan Eyre, where children of mixed marriages have to be raised Catholic, you know, this, these things don't help. So I suppose going back to this and understanding really the extent of sectarianism and the nature of it that it's not necessarily always being foistered from on top by political uh, communities but it's you know, bottom up sometimes it can be and like you know you've got these big cultural organizations like the orange order like the ancient order of barbarians who are deeply embedded in communities uh, who kind of i wouldn't say raising death to it but like they live and breathe sectarianism you know um, and i think maybe getting that a handle of that would uh, certainly in terms of how we all understand sectarianism I think would help like you know and um, rather than like it's just a really unhelpful labelling of one tradition or another you know you know because it suits someone's political agenda today and I think we've seen I think there's been a limited amount, and thankfully, you know, because I was worried maybe in the run-up to the decade of centenaries, centenaries that it would be desperately politicised. There have mm. been a couple of events, and maybe that... Uh, now, we have seen, unfortunately, events that have occurred yeah, which have been overtaken by politics. The, like, I suppose the, 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 the whole discussion around the RIC and Black, slash Black and Tan uh, commemoration, maybe because it happened early, was actually... And it's hard to know, had COVID not happened, what way all this would have played out, because uh, uh, that obviously kind of dampened all commemorate, commemorative events because yes. people just couldn't meet up. And that was where I think, you know, and at the same time, I'm not like in any way trying to say that these things shouldn't be, you know, that they should be controlled or, you know, people in communities should celebrate the events that happened in their communities. But I think sometimes it can be used in unhelpful ways. Um, We spoke earlier on, Finn, about how you introduced certain characters or events who might have been less well-known into the narrative. And one of them was Theodosia Nash, a name that wouldn't be very familiar to a lot of listeners or indeed most, Mm. um, most, most readers of the history at the time. Can you give us some idea of who Theodosia Nash was 
and why she plays a part in your story. Yeah, so I suppose Theodosia Nash really stood out to me when I came across her. Uh, she was a Limerick woman who was born in the late 19th century, but into a family that was really, I suppose, fallen. Her father, she had been, they had been uh, Anglo-Irish aristocrats, I suppose, or certainly gentry. The family had also connections to high political office. But by the time Theodosia is born, not long afterward, her father dies, her mother remarries and remarries a man, what would have been considered at the time, well below their station. She moves into Limerick. She married beneath herself. Beneath herself. Would have, yeah. Derogatory term. She, they move into Limerick City and then live in what I suppose most people would call very difficult conditions in, in, in tenements in Limerick. Um, what interested me about the Nashes, and I think it is important, um, you know, history is written by the, with the winners maybe to a degree, but also given the perspective of people like her family essentially losing the War of Independence in that. On the wrong they, side of history. Yeah, they're totally on the wrong side of history. Um, Theodosia and her sister are interesting though in that they both have to try and do something in life. There's certainly no money, or there, there's a limited amount of money from what I could tell left to them that they probably get when they're 18, but it's not enough. They're not going to be able to survive. And what happens is that they both become kind of uh, uh, governesses. And um, they seem to be educated in this by their uncle on their mother's side who takes the two women into his house for a while. And that's probably maybe a way of getting some experience. Long story short, they end up in Ukraine um, by the outbreak of the First World War. And this was a common enough experience um, that, well, they, they really sought English governesses, but you know, in Ukraine in the early 20th century, well, Ireland, first of all, was part of the United Kingdom, but you know, Irish people obviously spoke English perfectly. So, you know, it wouldn't have been, it was a different accent as opposed to, so they would have worked as governesses in Ukraine. They get caught there though by the outbreak of the First World War. It's more or less impossible to get from Ukraine to Ireland. The only way to do it would be to travel all the way across Russia, across America and back that way. They're not going to do it. Um, and then they are caught up in the Russian Revolution. Now the reason I was really interested in Theodosia Nash was because she, well her life in Ireland in many ways kind of was fascinating story it embodied you know change changes underway in society as well though not too many made the journey from limerick to ukraine no at no at that time not so many are even doing it now no no but she also like they kind of fall like that it's an interesting kind of discussion of class though as well and um, certainly there was huge changes in class in Ireland in the, in the early 20th century but also what was more important though from my perspective is that the, uh, she lives through the Russian Revolution then and the Russian Revolution is this enormous event not only in Russian history and global history and particularly at the time she the ramifications uh, of which uh, carried on for today 80, are, 90 years Certainly, yeah, certainly, but even you could argue today, like we still haven't, whatever it was, Deng Xiaoping or whoever said it, we still haven't, too early to tell. Yes. Yeah. Um, but she, after the Russian, or sorry, after the, yeah, after the Russian Revolution, she moves around, finds herself in Moscow eventually by 1918, and the Bolsheviks just want rid of her and about 40 or 50 other um, aristocrats. Yeah, and some of them are just English people, but they're, I think they're probably just worried about 
something happening to them. Russia at this point is sliding into total chaos. Um, the civil war is happening and they secure them a train. Uh, then they go from Moscow all across. It's basically the Trans-Siberian Railroad uh, to um, Vladivostok, and from Vladivostok to Japan, from Japan to... My goodness, this is turning into yeah, a they end up in the west coast of the US, cross the US. Interestingly, they never come back to Ireland. From what I can tell, they stop in uh, Montreal, and that was the last place I found them. But their experience of these events, and you know, there was a, a woman, uh, an English aristocrat, who was with them, um, whose name is eluding me at the moment, but she um, would, she eventually published part of an account of this journey so we get a sense of it like they're in in 1918 in late 1918 they're in uh, uh sorry they're in sorry in february rather 1918 they're in this tiny village in russia that's celebrating the, the russian revolution yes because obviously it's a huge event for these people M much the same as is has happened and is about to happen in ireland oh, yeah. obviously yeah. not with the the socialist um spin on it but it is another Irish person in the middle of a revolution somewhere far flung and somebody who has and can embody the fall from grace of many of the landed uh, yeah, landed Anglo-Irish families at the time. Yeah, and I think her story is so interesting in many ways that she ends up in Ukraine probably living or working for a family that she possibly would have at one point or certainly her parents when she was born would have maybe imagined her living the life where she would have hired the governess and her life just totally falls apart around her to a degree and they by becoming a governess they kind of I suppose salvage something and stuff the total as they would have seen it decline into penury um you know and they, it's it's got some sort of status it's got some sort and like that's why they wanted i think largely because governesses were not seen really as part of the house or the the servant the servants in that yes yeah. they had this odd position between, there, were, there were middle class in the household yeah exactly and um so yeah her life just intrigued me as this limerick woman who ended up Interesting, I don't know, people might be vaguely familiar with her nephew, who was a, was a famous Hollywood actor at the time, called Joseph Carl Nash, um, who was kind of big in uh, film in the 1920s. Okay. And whether they had any connection to him, what happened, when, so they stopped in Montreal, and whether they had any connection to him afterwards, I don't know. It's kind of, they ran out of my story, and I didn't spend too much time. And, um, and a, a very intriguing story it is. Mm. Um, just to finish up, um, Finn, can you give us any idea of any other off-the-beaten-track, um, less well-known characters that you will introduce to us? Um, I'm currently working on an episode that looks at the Republican court system and the, kind of the I suppose, shadow government. And, and there's two women who ran... Now, they're not totally off-the-beaten-track, but two women who ran a prison at the back of their house in Dublin uh, during the War of Independence. Uh, so they ran a prison at the back of their house. house yeah, like just in a yard at the back of their okay. house. That, and it was a very dangerous thing to do because, like, if you know, obviously lots of people might have uh, stored weapons in their house. They could easily be moved if news arrived of a raid, an imminent raid, moving twenty people in sheds at the back of their house. And it was just a very interesting thing, and very sad actually in a way that they had to, they really struggled to get military pensions for having done this. 
Yeah, and uh, these so these two women. Just as an example, I suppose, in a way, one of the first institutions of the Irish uh, of the of an independent Irish government was uh, this these two sheds at the back of it. Uh, actually, I found the house was sold not that long ago and has been completely renovated. And was it the first prison of the Irish Republic? Man, it was certainly one of. I'm sure there was cow sheds and, uh, <laughs> across other parts. Of, People were sorry. kept in all sorts. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so, the, so I'm, I'm working on that at the moment. And uh, uh, that, yeah, that's going to be an interesting story when it comes out. Um, Finn, thank you very much for joining us today for what was a very wide-ranging, intriguing conversation. Uh, we touched on a lot of points and we could stay here, I would say, for another few days to touch on many more. Your series continues. Um, there are how many episodes still to come? Um, it will be eight or nine. Eight or nine. Yeah. And we encourage everybody to avail of those and also have a look at Finn's back catalogue because obviously we're talking about the War of Independence here but Finn's work will bring you back to uh, pre-Christian Ireland if that is your uh, if that's your historical taste. Finn thank you very much all the best with the series and hopefully at some stage in the future we'll chat again. Thank you all for listening and we hope you can join us for our next discussion commemorating Carlo and Ireland's Decade of Centenaries.